Hello, my name is Hazen Kyler, and welcome to the Greenhouse Ensemble's Portrait of an Artist, a podcast where we sit down and talk with today's independent artists of any discipline. Some are well-known, and some are not yet well-known, but all of them are driven, passionate, and precise in their work. Rob Rosnowski is head of acting and directing at Michigan State University. Among his innumerable nominations, he holds 15 awards for his direction, 9 awards for his playwriting. He has been nominated for U.S. Professor of the Year Award three times by the Carnegie Foundation and the Council for Advancement and Support of Education. In 2012, Rob received the Michigan Distinguished Professor of the Year Award given by the President's Council, State Universities of Michigan. In today's episode, we hear about Rob's journey from actor to director, writer, and educator. We discuss a glossed-over technique in acting learn about the unique challenges in educating this current generation of college students. And finally, we discuss the importance of empathy and how theater and art may hold the key to finding some commonality within our divisive culture. Throughout the episode, we'll give you a taste of music from some of our favorite independent artists. Check out GreenhouseEnsemble.com to see who they are and where you can find more of their work. Without any further ado, I give you Rob Rosnowski. Where did you grow up? Where did it begin? One thing that you have to keep examining in your artistic process is, is, is am I doing it for the right reasons or the same reasons? And have I grown or haven't I grown? That sort of thing. I think for me, it was because I have two reasons. One, I was hyperactive and I needed an outlet for something. I really, I mean, this was way back before anybody knew anything about anything. And I was just un, unstoppable in terms of wanting to do and experiment and try, right? And the other thing was, I was also, uh, even at that young age, I was using humor to hide my introversion, right? So I would um, go on stage and get applause or laughs just to kind of fulfill this this social anxiety or fear that I had um, about just being me. So I think that I created in order to make myself feel better. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's shifted over the years because I, I no longer am on stage, right? I'm not the one that's receiving the laughs or the applause or that sort of thing. I help other people do that. And that gives me so much more satisfaction. Remember just being on stage, doing a show in Los Angeles and, and that city sort of defines this sort of selfishness of the actor, right? This kind of uh, the idea that, uh, that everything is about your career and everything is about, you know, the next job and the booking and all that sort of stuff and I was just like I don't ever want anyone to look at me ever again you know I mean I, I literally felt that it was on stage and I just remember having I'm like I don't want to ever have to worry about what I look like or 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 all, all of these things that were such a, an important part of the actor's life in Los Angeles specifically and I was just like that's the moment I knew that I wanted to devote myself full time to teaching, to kind of working. And, and that moment, I still had a couple of months in the contract and, but I, I really sort of laid the groundwork to go into what I've always known I wanted to do, which was be an educator. And that moment was really kind of telling for me. And then my artistic process kind of matured in my own version, matured because I was no longer um, kind of doing it for myself. I was doing it now for others. And I, I still think that that beginning spark was there that, you know, of, of trying to get acceptance. But now for me, there's a level of confidence and a level of um, security that happens because the focus isn't necessarily on me. 
my mom recently said something like this to me. She said, I think you want to be a director. I said, no, I want to be an actor and a director. I want to do it all. But what she said was that when you're directing, you're, you're still an artist. You're, you're kind of sculpting people. Even acting, the way that you experienced it in Los Angeles, too, is this thing about me. It's about me. There's this like cultural thing that's probably been around forever about self-centeredness. Yeah. But acting has to be about the other person and in the same way that directing or being an educator you're kind of sculpting or well i mean i think there's a different there's different levels and approaches i'm right now i'm working on this presentation i'm doing for a whole new cohort of grad students coming in about like what's the difference between being an acting teacher and being a director Mm -hmm. and how you know i mean how do you approach those things and one is about letting people come to the vision as a director and the other part is kind of unlocking potential as a teacher right so how then do you navigate both of those worlds you know you have always from my knowledge of you from years ago have always loved the craft more than most right I mean you were reading and thinking and examining things from alternate points of view well beyond most of the other people that I've ever been around thank you but you were I mean you're always sort of doing that so it makes sense that you want to become a theater maker right so Mm -hmm. this idea of producer this idea of director right the acting part of it becomes at least for me and I would imagine it might someday for you become um, less fulfilling because of the lack of autonomy and I think by starting Starting your own theater company, you've already started to create this infrastructure for creating art in the way that you want. Because so often you get involved in projects and it's disappointment or the director sucks or, or the interpretation isn't what you agree with, right? And so more often than not, you're at the mercy of lots of other people's decisions. Being the artistic director and having to direct everything, mm-hmm. even in the sense of being an educator, you start to see yourself slipping away from, from yourself and putting all of this attention on, on other people. And you start to wonder, is there room? Yeah. And when you do go back to having someone else direct you in a way that's not matching with your process that you've now kind of sculpted or created or crafted, will you be as receptive or will you be as patient? We're going to take a quick break from the conversation to check out King Louis or There's Not Enough Champagne by Gawain and the Green Knight. I'm King Louis and I love to dance. Oh, I'm King Louis, I'm the king of France. Oh, I'm King Louis and I love to dance, but I love to gossip more. At first sight, even the walls have fears. Oh, you know I kill to hear. You said something before that I thought was interesting. You said going into it for the wrong reason. You wanted to make sure that you were going into acting for the right reason or going into things for the right reason and not for the wrong reason. What is what does that mean? I think that the wrong reason is very judgmental and of course it's personal, right? Yeah. So for me, the work that I was doing as an actor, I mean, I was 
doing a lot of musical theater, a lot of commercial stuff. My gig was normally a guy playing lots of different roles within a show. That's the comic relief sort of dude that I was. I was taking shortcuts in everything I was doing because that was my gig, is, is staying in within that world. And so I was just kind of just repeating lots of different choices that I was doing, but they seemed unique to, in the, to, the, to the audience or to the director or that sort of thing. And I was pretty unfulfilling. And it became less and less about the training that I was doing and more and more about face number 13 with voice number 12 with body number 15. I did a lot of stuff that I wouldn't necessarily be proud of, but that offered me pay. You know what I mean? And and so that's when I started becoming more autonomous and started writing and making films and directing and doing all of that stuff on the side, which really fueled me so that I could do the other more commercial stuff, you know? It's, it's amazing just these different paths that people take that will decide even just whether they become a really good artist or not. When you get to be, um, I mean, just being 30, I'll edit that out. Um, <laughs> but I noticed that all of the work that I did at MSU and the few jobs that I had after MSU and even the work that I did in high school, all of that effort that I put into things and the way, just the way that I happened to look at things yeah. had such an impact on, on my work as an artist now. I, Stanislavski talked about how... Who? Yeah, some guy, some Russian guy. God. Uh, but he talked about how he didn't think that he was ever going to be a great actor because he had spent so much time in the kind of stock theater in Russia that he had picked up so many habits and ways of, of going about working that he didn't feel like he was going to be able to break out of those. Yeah. The things that have changed me as an artist were always the things that I created rather than the things that I was hired to do. And I think that that has helped me mature and define myself because I was taking one path as an actor that was a pretty standard one. And then alongside of that, at, at every job I was teaching, doing master classes, coaching, that sort of thing, I was also writing my own stuff. And so I started enjoying that part of it more than I enjoyed the auditioning and the pursuant of the professional stuff. When I reflect on when I worked for other people, I do get this sense of like this immediacy, this urgency and kind of being like, well, I hope this works, but it's not really as directed toward trying to sculpt and make this into the vision that I see. And then where does your craft go? Yeah. Right. When you, when you were, oh, thank God, I'm not going to get fired. Right. Yeah. Which is always in your head. Right. Like, thank God. I, oh, they laughed at that. Phew, I'm safe. Right. For now. <laughs> and so it, it becomes uh, less and less about the, uh, the scene partner yeah. and more about your scene partner becomes the director or the artistic director, the producer. You know, I, I was studying with uh, Patsy Rodenberg and Oh. She was some lady, some English lady. <laughs> I was watching a scene from Romeo and Juliet that she was critiquing a student. And this this girl was doing all these like things that were making everybody laugh. And everybody kept laughing more and more. But Patsy Rodenberg didn't. And then at the end, she basically turned to us and said, you shouldn't laugh at that. Because it's theatrical cleverness. It's not tapping into the truth of what the circumstances is or what the character is dealing with. It's it, like, like what you're saying. If you're in a job or something and you need to make people laugh because you have this fear that you're going to be fired, you you come up with these tricks. Yeah. And that's what they hire you for. Yeah. You're that guy that can do that thing. And it waters down the audience because the audience starts to look at this and say, oh, that's supposed to be funny. Or I recognize this habit and because other people have done it. And so I'll laugh at that. Well, I mean, that, that, the awesome part about being an educator 
indicator, right, is that you have a, a detector for kind of tricks so that you sit there and you're like, that's habitual. That's that's a tick. That's something that you do to hide from emotion. Uh, all of these things that are really easy to solve and help and examine as an educator. But I don't know if I had that same ability to do to myself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I remember one of the first things that I learned at Michigan State. I was walking down the hall or something, and you looked at me, and you said, oh, you've got the haze and cool walk. And I said, what? This is just how I walk. But it's amazing to think of all the habits that people don't well, recognize. I, that they I mean, but remember, too, right? You, you came in with a persona. You came in with this safety net yeah. of what it meant to be an actor. You wanted to suffer and you wanted to be <laughs> ponderous. And you, I mean, you yeah. really, you believe that that's what it meant to be an actor. And trying to get you to a level of truth within your work, we really had to kind of scrape through that. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Too often, there, we kind of have such armor around us that we only play the things that we vet or feel comfortable with or feel safe with. As an actor specifically, yes, for all artists, but I think as an actor specifically, you've got to be so self-aware that you can adapt yourself to play somebody else. Here's another piece of music from the brilliant UK artist, Andrew Butler. The song is Fiona. When Charlie stops us on the street specialty is inner monologue. Well, obviously, I studied with it for a long time. I I always use it in all of my work. I noticed when I graduated from Michigan State that some people didn't really get what that meant because so much of the idea of acting is about, no, you're not thinking. You're putting all of your attention on the other person. You're not supposed to think. That's bullshit. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's bullshit. We spend our life. I mean, if we're supposed to represent what we do in life on stage, we think in life, too. You know what I mean? And it's, it's shocking to me. It's not like I invented the term inner monologue, right? <laughs> it's not like, uh, it, like, but it's so shocking to me how it is just so underused and underserved mm-hmm. as an actor's tool, right? I go around and do lots of master classes and people are always like, yeah, I never really touch on that in my work, you know, with actors. We never really talk about that. I'm like, well, that, that's a huge part of life. And why is it not a huge part of the actor's life? All of those moments when an actor's alone on stage, should they be not, what, what should they just be pursuing that task? Certainly but also thinking about pursuing that task. I've got to now look over here. It's shocking to me that people are not using it as often as we do in real life. 
one of the problems that starts to happen if you don't have an understanding of the the character's thoughts is that it starts to go into these like we were talking about before habits yeah or it goes into this weird personal territory that's not revealing the specific understanding of the character we do automatically enter monologue while we're on stage because we're thinking about laughs or we're thinking about the direction that we got or we're thinking about um, you know what our, our, our scene partners doing and so all of those things that are judgmental or, or take you away can really be solved by thinking the thoughts of the character and you can quiet that self-talk that negative sort of shit that happens in your head by kind of focusing on the character's thoughts and for a lot of people that's really eye-opening in terms of releasing them people think of it as a really head-centered technique but it's absolutely not it's really in the moment it's it's mindful mindfulness basically mm-hmm. so you're writing another book right now my work kind of intersects psychology and acting right the second acting book that i wrote was called roadblocks in acting and that was about habits of the actor and why do you keep making the same choices when you're playing different characters and and it's a much more methodical way using psychological tests to kind of help you transform and overcome the roadblocks that you've set for yourself in your acting taking these various tests both as your personal self as your professional self and then as some characters that you've played so we start to see the crossover between all of the work that you're doing you start to examine yourself from various points of view and I think it's really interesting to kind of examine that stuff the most consistent kind of roadblocks that people do using humor to avoid emotion or you know your fear of power uh, you know like that sort of stuff so in there there's lots of different approaches about identifying and targeting issues that you want to overcome as an actor and really spending time on that. That's awesome to really zero in and really pay attention to the things that you're doing and what you're actually trying to create. That's kind of responsibility yeah. to say that I need to really address it and, and looking at that cross-section. is For most people, they don't ever spend the time to really analyze their work from that point of view. So the book is systematically takes you through examining your resume and writing a bio for yourself and doing all this sort of work that you can do to kind of make connections that have been there under the surface in your brain but now kind of making them more attention these parts come to you at specific moments in your life you can identify uh, sensations or pieces of your life of why you're doing this this specific role yeah. but to have an actual methodology to start to kind of look at those things so you don't fall into doing just the same thing or you become self-indulgent or something yeah. but that it's a that it's a real character with some of those sensations underneath it our next musician is a powerful new artist, gaining popularity. She's been featured on CBS, VH1, MTV, Logo, USA Network, Lifetime, ABC Family, The CW Network, Freeform Television, Paramount Network, CMT, and Showtime. I hope you enjoy Trigger by Tatiana Owens.
The one I'm working on now, it's examining the introvert and why they would want to even be in this profession. Why are there so many introverted actors and what do they get out of it? It's examining why we rely on so many extroverted training methods. So like improvisation is fucking nightmare yeah. to introverts, right? <laughs> Who need time to plan and think, right? We're like improv, right? We're ensemble building. Fuck that, right? I mean like fuck that. They need to go on their own on the side and create stuff. So why would an introvert put themselves on display? Why would they put themselves in front of thousands of people to do their work? What I've really been working on with it is... Um working with Susan Cain do you know that book Quiet Revolution she's created this amazing empire about like kind of looking at the educational and corporate systems in America mm -hmm. where people kind of have to collaborate or the loudest voice in the room wins and that sort of thing mm -hmm. and so I've been working with them about how we can train and change the way in which we educate now to offer parity in the classroom to extroverts and introverts so the way in which I've been assigning stuff and the way in which I talk about participation has really changed because I am an introvert and yet I was like, everybody's got to go. And, you know, like everybody has to volunteer, all that yeah. sort of shit that I hated. Force it <laughs> totally. And so, like, I, I was doing that. And yeah. I, I really sort of made some adjustments. That's amazing, especially in terms of society right now in the, like, kind of Trump era where an election was won by the loudest voice. Yeah, totally. I was watching a Bill Maher episode with, uh, with Milo, who went to Michigan State. Yes. He was talking about how if you don't show up to debate, you lose. And then everyone started applauding like as they appeared to have reached some common ground. But there's something kind of gross about that because what about all the people who don't want to debate? Right. But so what do you do with, with the other half of the population of those people who say, well, I have my feelings, but I don't, I I don't, don't want to fight right? you. Yeah, exactly. Or, yeah, I don't need to debate you. Yeah. Is this a book where, if I'm an introvert, for me running a rehearsal room, that I would say, like, I need to be able to support all of my yes. actors, all of my people, versus techniques for the introvert to say, okay, these are the things I need to do to, like, to be able to function, or is it both? Both. Right now, the case studies sort of offer best practices, ideas for both directors and educators to say, if you're going to do an improv in your class, give out the information the day before called the long runway technique, where you, you give out the information before, the rules of the game, all of these things that an introvert needs to know in order to feel comfortable kind of participating in it. A common argument that's been popping up recently, especially after Trump was elected, mm -hmm. with safe spaces in universities and how this book kind of fits fits into that in some way because i don't think that you're a safe space <laughs> i mean i mean i always felt inspired and everything but you're so challenging so you feel unsafe in a way that makes you feel like you have to sur survive and that pushes you to a place closer to your potential which is one of the great things about working with you. But how does this book, how does this kind of culture mix with, with yeah. what you're creating? So let's step back from that for just, it's an awesome question. It's really smart. But now look at it also from the idea of being at Michigan State University, yeah. where that hugest scandal of all time yeah. has taken place, yeah. right? Yeah. And how then can you be an educator and ask these students to go and rehearse Miss Julie just go or do, do the rape scene from Streetcar yeah. rehearse that tonight <laughs> right and how then can you approach that to knowing that those two people are going to be alone in a rehearsal room at midnight somewhere on campus or how can you approach the material in the same way uh, just this, as Streetcar let's say right like how can you approach that in the same way knowing that you are a cultural icon of bad behavior and it's been a real 
really crazy time. Yeah. We've had so many discussions about just inferred power. This is an amazing story, right? I was teaching an advanced directing class and I was, they were doing farce scenes and they had to create the scenario themselves. I had given a lecture that day about like, we are in a whole different time. No longer can we do these sex farces where we objectify women, where it's like, you know, Natalie needs a nighty and all this sort of shit, right? So I was telling that and then they were doing the scenario and this one student said, yeah, I, I kind of did the old fashioned sex farce and, and so I'm having the student play a uh, and she needs to get spanked and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, I guess I should have given this lecture before, right? And so he gets into the rehearsal. The student is there. And he's like, okay, so you need to get on your knees. And then he's going to spank you and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, well, before we go any further, are you comfortable with this to the student? Right? And she goes, yeah, sure. And I'm like, okay, so then if that's the case, then, then we need to do blank, 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 blank. Later, that same student went to a female faculty member and felt that she, I had coerced her into that and I oh my right so I talked to that student and, uh, again with another faculty member there because I'm like what the fuck yeah. and it was just this idea and, and it wasn't blame or anything it was that she didn't feel that she could say no because I was in a position of power this is this Isn't that fucking crazy. Yeah, it's crazy, and and it's it's interesting. This whole thing is the self protective thing that's yeah. surrounding. Not just the, it's not just the students anymore, especially with Michigan State. Yeah. It's all of the faculty, all the way that we have to be able to even teach. Yes. So now my syllabus is filled with harassment uh, language and, and what is qualifications for harassment. The culture that I now teach is so different than when you were there. So you talk about this idea of challenging and you talk about this sort of thing. The culture that we have now of 18 to 21 year olds have such a high degree of mental illness, diagnosable issues, anxiety, depression, things that we kind of, in, in back in the day, were like, you suck it up and you do your work and you leave that, you leave that at home, right? I, part of my life now is not counselor, right? I mean, but it's getting people to the right places with the right help. And it has really overtaken generationally. We did this, they did this giant presentation at school. And it, in the past 10 years, there's been a 100% increase of students going to the counseling center. There has been, there's 37% of MSU students are diagnosable in some way in terms of on the anxiety or, or, or depression scales. They're unable to, to deal with the intensity and the change in volume of, of students. And one thing that they said that was amazing is the students are coming in at the social level of a freshman in high school 10 years ago. So that they are, they're unprepared for college life. And so that first semester is, I, I've taught, I stopped teaching Introduction to Acting 101. I, I stopped it because to me it was so much about taking care of and parenting that I wasn't able to do the work that I wanted to do because I was spending most of my time kind of fielding tears and all this sort of stuff. So it's a really, really, really different time. I do wonder like what the actual impact on a person is when so many hours of their time is, is chipped away by not like doing engaging, engaging. Yeah. yeah well they talked about it and said you know and, and obviously the first answer to all of this is that this is the first generation entirely yeah. digital right and so the people that did the presentation from the counseling center were talking about that this generation lacks a kind of 
emotional glue that the other people have and, and talked about actually the brain not forming in traditional ways and they lack empathy and they lack socialization yeah and of course those are two main things that an actor needs right and so of course one of the, the things on the th- uh, slide was the people that are most prone to these issues are people in theater and people <laughs> right? you're like no nah. um, but it, it's it's a it's a really different time and I'm always asking too at the end of that presentation so do we lower our standards and expectations right because of the impossible standards uh, there's stuff going around now like the Royal Welsh College does no grades in your first year to put less pressure on students so it's become this whole generational thing of like we're putting too much pressure and we're causing anxiety rather than you know helping them sort of deal with it my favorite review I've read regarding our final artist today reads these quiet tunes dust off a few neglected shelves of the human soul and from them pull down vials filled with brightness from his debut album here is my personal favorite Veriditas by Charlie Rao. After the Trump thing, I was like, I need to be able to at least look at what these people's perspectives are, yeah. because really it came out of nowhere for yeah. me. I voted for Obama first, and then this is the first new president that that I've really experienced in my yeah. lifetime, I'd say. So I had no idea that all of these people were attached to it, especially coming up from Michigan State, mm-hmm. and then, then moving straight to New York. I was like, everything's liberal. Everybody's yeah, exactly. like... But what's... Um, so I started going into the podcasts and things of like the right wing Ben Shapiro and mm. and Milo and and uh, like yeah. all of those people just to try to listen to their perspective, try to understand what they were talking about, and it was especially in the beginning very very painful. But I forced myself to just listen to what they're saying, and I could feel just in the same way as trying to empathize with someone, I could feel a similar pain because I was having to reconsider structures in my life and my identity yeah. that I hadn't. Totally considered. But, awesome. but I think it's a similar thing with people on the right. Because I would say that I am on the left. And I think that people on the right, one thing that I keep noticing is the lack of empathy from a lack of exposure to art. Yeah, that is very, very true. And I think that there's people who aren't considering going through that same painful process of really examining the life experiences and the feelings of other people. Yeah, I think that you are so right on that. Um, I was just at this conference in Stratford, and one of the questions was, is theater part of the problem, or how can it be a solution? And this was a mostly British audience, and one of their solutions was going back to grassroots and doing theater for the public and to have public discourse. And I just thought about how that would not work well in America, right? Because theater, the arts, the thing that you're talking about is really considered elitist or leftist and liberal at the very least. And so when those people see themselves, the people on the right see themselves represented in our left-leaning work, they are mocked 
or they are disrespected or, or they're bigots who like learn the lesson at the end, you know, yeah, yeah. and we're not empathizing with that. We're, we're kind of villainizing them. We set out a call for left-wing identified playwrights, which is very easy to find. Yeah. And then we also said for right-wing identified playwrights, because we want to put it together like a 10-minute play soiree that you were involved yeah. with from very identified people, but looking for great artistry mm-hmm. regardless, because it doesn't matter whether you're, what your idea, David Mamet, for instance, oh. and to see what some guy, mm-hmm. the point of the mixing the left-wing and right-wing plays is to eliminate the things that people are talking about and try to get audiences to recognize the emotional experience that doesn't matter about party affiliation, that yeah. these people are suffering or experiencing love or whatever. And if it's done really well, you just keep connecting with them. And so we put out a call just like we always do. So we've gotten like 150 or something. And how many do you think are right wing? Four. Really? Four. The point is that they're they're not there. Yeah. The the people the thing the argument that drives me a little bit insane is people saying that the right wing are closed off that that there's this conspiracy on the left trying to isolate the the right the problem isn't that they're not there well but like I said they're not really they're not really welcome right yeah. imagine a white right wing playwright going into a rehearsal hall with a bunch of left leaning actors and more often than not what you're describing can kind of go down to propaganda that's why you see those bizarre kind of crappy right movies where yeah. you you embrace God and shit, you know, like all that yeah. sort of stuff that are very strange, but have been successful financially, you know? Yeah. I, and I, it's amazing to cut you off. The yeah. thing like with the Roseanne thing and with Tim Allen, they are idolizing artists who aren't that good. Yeah. Yeah. And and everything about those shows are not that good, and they need the the problem is a lack of exposure to to art and to be inspired by art. I watched a, a, a lack of representation too. Yeah, but I think that I think it leads to the yes. the other maybe. Yeah. There definitely needs to be more right wing artists like David Mamet, even though he's a maniac. But I watched an interview of him and Ben Shapiro the other day, mm. and he's just a genius. Whatever his his views are, you can just tell when you're listening to him speak that he's a genius well i mean but there's but there's now we have to really classify things right because there's right wing but then there's trump Right. So those people I don't necessarily consider just right wing. I consider those a branch or people that are fine with a lot of the things that are happening now. I think that most right wing people have a just like liberals do have a scale of grayness within them that they can agree with. So you might be right wing, but you can also believe in a woman's right to choose. I think right now what we have is this kind of militant. Uh, faction over here in the Trump thing. There's two different factions that seem to be happening and one is this debate side of everything. If you don't show up to the debate, the scientific debate, the factual debate, Mm -hmm. then you lose. And then the other side I was directing these Me Too plays. The plays weren't really what moved me. There was a talk back after, and it was people talking about their own experiences within this movement or about what the movement's about. And you could see it's not about the facts of, because it starts to become muddled about, well, well, did she say yes or did she not say? These Mm. are the facts of what actually happened. It became about the emotional fact that this person actually feels something specific. And that's a fact, and we're ignoring, or that. There's a faction of people that are ignoring emotional facts partially because they don't experience the highest values of art Mm -hmm. as much instead of reality TV or whatever. Well, I mean, 
I wrote this children's play called The Amazing America Road Trip, and it was right after the election, and it was about this family going on vacation, and the mom was a Republican, and the dad was a Democrat, and, and for the first five minutes of the show, you think it takes place in modern time. Eventually, it's revealed that the election that they're talking about was Nixon, and the play sort of made parallels throughout, and I wrote the play in order to kind of say that we're going to be okay. We've been through kind of crazy shit before, but I think more than that, it was to kind of for children to kind of lay, lay in their mindset that dialogue needs to happen, right? And so that was one of the hardest things that I ever had to write, to be fair to and write a right-wing character that was sympathetic mm-hmm. and that that I understood and believed the ideals that I was writing for that character. It re- is really a difficult time, but I think the skill that you're talking about that actors have, which is empathy, right, is really an important thing. And I think that empathy can be transformed into artistic expression so that more plays could be written from that point of view and not polemics not like things that are there to teach us lessons but from characters that really do embrace and understand these values need to be represented on stage and not in this way that's condescending you know so thank you for listening keep up with rob at robrosnowski.com or check out michigan state university's exceptional theater program at theater.msu.edu next time on portrait of an artist we sit down with aaron malkin and alistair knowles two performers currently at soho playhouse in their internationally acclaimed show james and jamesy see you next time